A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 279, Catching Up with Max Lau. Thank you all so much for the messages of sympathy while I was ill. I hope you enjoyed some kind of break over the holiday season. I will be sitting down across a Zoom call with Anthony Caldellis soon to bring you parts three and four of our series. But today we are catching up with Max Lau. Dr. Lau came on the show 50 episodes ago to talk about his book, which covered the life and career of John Komnenos, Alexius's son, Manuel's father. Max lent me the manuscript of his book, which heavily influenced my coverage of John's career, and now the good news is the book has been published. We talk about how you can buy the book and why you might want to in the interview. And if you'd like a discount, then go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com, find the page for episode 279, and the details are all there. After talking about the book, I decided to quiz Max on everything we've been through since. Manuel's reign, the collapse of the empire, and the Fourth Crusade. To see what insights he can offer, and the different opinions he has on what went down. It's a wide-ranging discussion of the past 50 episodes or so. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Maximilian Lau, welcome back to the History of Byzantium. Good to be here. (laughs) Well, I think... um, any listeners uh, struggling to recall will remember this was episode 229 when you were last on the show to talk about John Komnenos. Um, you had at that time written the book on uh, Alexius's son, Manuel's dad, and uh, you kindly shared it with me, which greatly enriched the podcast. And um, we have good news because I've had messages ever since then saying, oh, well, I want to buy this book. Where's this book? When's this book coming out? And uh, the book is now out. Finally, yeah, I know the uh, lag on these things takes uh, quite a while. Um, but yeah, no, very glad to report that it is finally out uh, in hardback anyway, um, which is yeah, also why particularly actually for your listeners today, I've actually uh, got a little discount count code for you all, which shouldn't uh, run out ever. Um, so because I realized this because partially because of all the photos and things in it, uh, this is a bit of a pricey item. I have hope one day it might come out in paperback, but you know, no knowing on these things, that's up to the people above um but uh this will probably hopefully go on the website as well but for any listeners here if you go on to the oup website uh and you know if you go to the you know usual place you put in some discount codes uh when you sort of try and buy one of these things uh and if you type in um a a f l y g6 so that's a fly g6 uh that'll get you 30 percent off um, which hopefully should be useful for some of you uh, on this sort of stuff, um, which is yeah, the least I can do considering uh, so these things are not cheap uh, kind of thing. But hopefully I said all the photos and everything else in there uh, make up for it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is academic publishing, obviously. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I don't think they realise that there is more of a market out there now mm. with, with the internet kind of spreading Byzantine content around. Um so yeah, I will put all this on the website. So the Oxford University Press um, have published this book. I recommend it highly. Obviously, go back to episode two two nine for more on 
the specifics and on John, but the the pictures I think are particularly exciting for hardcore Byzantinists because you traveled all over uh, Turkey and the Balkans and climbed up, you know, these uh, mm-hmm. great hills and, and mountain passes and took photos of these crumbling forts, which obviously tour guides just don't take people to. There isn't that wider interest until unless you're sort of into a podcast like this. So I loved it. Um, yeah no it's it's absolutely one of those things where um i mean even just finding some of these things i mean you some of these books i mean there is the sort of uh the sort of the foss volume which talks about say byzantine forts which came out in the 1980s and you, you read this volume and there's a few sort of grainy black and white photos that you know he took probably in the early 70s maybe earlier um and you know he says things like oh you know just to the south of this town and obviously this town is now a massive city um where exactly is this thing and so you know absolutely finding these things is is a bit of an issue um to say the least so yeah tracking these down is fun but equally there's hopefully a few things on there i mean i have half wondered uh whether i don't know i should write some sort of um i don't know byzantine travel guide (laughs) to this part of the world of a few of these things uh if there was any interest or something um but yeah some of the i mean things like say anazarbos uh which is uh you know in um in Cilicia, you know, so if you you know see the fairy chimneys and the balloons and all this kind of stuff, it's in that neck of the woods, um, kind of down into sort of, you know, just see Cappadocia, that sort of area there. And you know, there's no, there's no, there's no gift shop, there's no whatever it is. You can find that on Google Maps, just typing in, you know, Anazarbos uh, Kalesi, um, and yet you just wander all over this thing, and it is a huge ruined, you know, sort of uh, Byzantine Armenian city just sitting there. Uh, with a kind of, you know, ancient Roman sort of, you know, high street and things down at the bottom. Uh, and then up at the top, I mean, this whole fortress, and you've got sort of, you know, Comnanian, um, you know, uh, rebuilded bits. You can see sort of quite obviously the bits which are kind of, you know, okay, those are obviously Comnanian looking. Uh, these are more, you know, sort of later sort of grand Armenian stuff. Um, and yeah, there's there's no one anywhere. I mean, there's a sort of shepherd or two, maybe you can ask direction, directions for. Um, so yeah, go nuts, people. I mean, there's all this stuff out there. Well, it, that's um, of course where John died as well. Very near, yeah. Yeah. He so he died. Right, there, yeah. He was mm-hmm. staying there, waiting to take over Antioch, and then it all went wrong. So, I, I had dreams of of doing a tour that would go there on the way to Antakya, mm-hmm. and of course the tragic earthquake has made that uh, a long distant <laughs> dream now. But um, yeah. yeah. So that I I love the book for for things like that. Um, So yeah, thoroughly recommend it. Do go check it out. All the details on the website um, for this episode. Um, But of course, uh, you have studied not just John Comney Noss uh, Mm -hmm. during your time as a a Byzantine scholar. And so um, we we were having conversations. You you introduced me to Nathan Websdale, who I've had on to talk about um, what's happened since uh, John and since Manuel. So I thought we'd have a little catch up and just see if you had any insights you wanted to share on the period that um we've covered in the last sort of 50 episodes or so um because obviously um one of the interesting things i thought at the end of your book was you talked about what if john hadn't died and we sort of touched on on the interview you know what would he have done next and what would he have gone back to constantinople as an older man and tried to sort out you know ecclesiastical issues and so on and so on and so you would have opinions on how Manuel then handles things when he takes over. Um, but m- my sense is he didn't have long to continue his father's legacy before the Second Crusade happens, which seemed to me at the time to sort of change the, 
the game. Was that your, would that be your sense of that or? Yeah, there's a few different things here. Mm. Um, partially, I mean, there's the manner of uh, how and when he took over because, you know, there, you know, there he was, as you said, sort of, uh, you know, in Cilicia um, and suddenly there he is with the army um, and in circumstances that definitely sort of are, are interesting, sort of, you know, is named as the next emperor, you know, Sabaksuk goes off, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, arrests his brother, um, sort of up in Constantinople. Um, and, you know, this is not a normal way. I mean, maybe there is no normal way as such, but this is not exactly sort of, you know, and here is my son, um, you know, being presented in the capital, taking over, which is why, I mean, reading that early bit of Man- uh, Manuel's reign, um, you know, it seems like he has to cover lots of the same ground that John did. Because uh, just like John, or indeed Alexius, or indeed many other emperors before and after, um, you immediately have to kind of reestablish yourself. And, you know, had his old brother Alexius, uh, you know, just naturally you know, been there, then, of course, he had been doing this for the last, you know, sort of 10 years at least. Um, and so would have kind of had, any, you know, wouldn't have had to redefeat the Serbs, redefeat the Turks on the borders, uh, all of these kind of things. I mean, that's part of it. Um I should probably jump in, just jump yeah. in the flow, just in case any mm. listeners are lost. Mm. Just remind them that when John dies, mm. his two eldest sons mm. die within the same year or within the same next 12 months, leaving his two younger sons. And Manuel, who is the youngest, then kind of takes the throne because he's with the army in Cilicia. So just reminding people of that mm. context. So as you say, so then there's confusion with all these people who John had a relationship with going well do i still have to stick to what i agreed you know and so on yeah. so just to remind people of that no and particularly there's the i mean there's this there's a couple of sort of references to the idea because there he was with four sons until just before he died and there are various sources that imply that he was going to you know give each of them little positions i mean there's this one particular source that implies one is going to head off to jerusalem and one is going to head off to um to you know, to italy to old rome this is written much later and so it's possibly a bit fanciful um, but this idea that, okay, each of the sons would have something useful to do and to contribute had seems to have been set up quite early. And then suddenly two of them are gone, including the one who was meant to be, you know, the full emperor after him. Um, and I mean, my uh, theory that comes out on this is that, you know, this was still something he was wrestling with when suddenly he's dying. And then he's got one son next to him and one son off in Constantinople. And usually it's not, I mean, if you look at, say, Barbarossa, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of the emperor, what happens when the emperor dies and this army just disperses and nothing useful happens? You, do, you don't want to do that kind of thing. Um, so in some ways, I mean, this is something John did right, even on his deathbed, was, you know, probably should give it to you know, the person I'm with here so that the whole thing doesn't completely fall apart. Um, but um, I suppose picking up the, the old Fred, I mean, you know, you can see in some ways in the, before the Second Crusade, you, you know, there is an attempt to pick things up where he left off. I mean, there is the siege of Konya, uh, Iconian, virtually immediately, which is very much one of those things that I think, I mean, with a little stepping stone approach, you know, the lake people, all these sorts of things, that is where John is aiming at. And, you know, his son picks this up and is going for this when the Second Crusade starts. Um, and, you know, therefore, you know, there, this very, very early period there is pure continuity in some ways, even despite... Uh, lots of some of the insecurity and having to retread some of these paths there. Um, then, yeah, this is sort of one of those, you know, to what extent is this, you know, sort of uh, Manuel's like, you know, personal kind of uh, personality, I suppose, coming out here. Um, because then, of course, you get these sort of really, uh, you know, quite you know, these prestige campaigns 
uh, yeah, which are pretty amazing. I mean, just thinking of the sort of the logistics involved into the Egypt campaign, um, or indeed the Italy campaign, but then equally all of these are grounded pretty solidly. I mean, thinking of the fact that under John, he goes Balkans and Anatolia and back within the year, year after year, um, not to mention occasionally having, you know, sort of armies operating in different theatres, uh, you know, under different generals. This is one of those things that doesn't come up in the sources so much because, you know, the emperor is kind of the main character uh, of these sources. And so when some other general is doing something somewhere else, it's usually reported on far less. But you do still have a few, you know, times of um, some of the Contestefani, you know, sort of winning something against the Serbs while John is in Anatolia. This is really logistically difficult to do in the medieval period. So as much as, you know, uh, some, you know, some uh, sources have talked about, oh, you know, Manuel wasted his time on Italy or Egypt. Some of these all very almost came off. I mean, it's the, the idea of this guy doing, I don't know, five different jigsaw puzzles at once, whereas really he should have finished one and then possibly moved on to the next one, whereas he's sort of trying for all of them. And John does this too. In some ways, this is a continuity of failures, I suppose. Whereas for a little while, John is backing, uh, I mean, I've got a whole chapter in the book on this. Um, he's backing a sort of a Turk, you know, sort of a Turkish prince. He's backing a Serb prince. He's backing a Hungarian prince all at the same time. Um, you know, and in some ways, had this somehow pulled off, you know, this would have absolutely given him, you know, all of these areas uh, as clients. But unsurprisingly, you know, this is overstretched. And then that's when, you know, Trebizond goes into rebellion. That's when Venice decides, you know, this is our moment. Um, so therefore, you know, uh, reach exceeding grasp is very much something that John suffered from as well. Um, he just, you know, managed to kind of, you know, pull up, you know, pull up and pull out a little bit. He realized, OK, time to make the slightly humiliating peace with Venice. And then I can focus on the Balkans. Balkans are sorted. Now I can return to Anatolia, pull it all up together. But, you know, early John also has lots of the same failures of Manuel uh, yeah. in, in a way. So there's a lot of continuities here. Likewise, on the kind of um, diplomacy side of things, I mean, with the Germans, obviously this whole you know marriage with, you know, Berth Irene, uh, this is you know, negotiated under John. And also with Jerusalem. I mean, you know, in this late period of John, you have um, uh, John's cousin, Adrian, uh, who's sort of a monk and later a, a bishop of Ochrid, um, uh, you know, sort of going over to Jerusalem uh, and the Holy Land, seeing everything, meeting everybody, giving, you know, giving some money out. Very much the kind of soft power approach, which, you know, is which doesn't come out in some of the other sort of books on this. But, you know, lots of the kind of soft power manual stuff is also going on under John. Uh, so I think there is, to be fair, a lot of continuity there. Um, even despite sort of uh, this I know, portrayal of sort of Manuel as the more sort of party prince, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so uh, obviously Manuel's reign is long. Mm. And <clears throat> so we can't sort of talk about every in and out of it. I mean, my conclusion on him is that um, he had a more complicated time geopolitically than than anyone i think since justinian almost just because the you know the 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 balkans for a long time wasn't divided between sort of four or five powers and and the east was sort of always one power so it was a much sort of simpler dynamic for emperors for hundreds of years whereas he's suddenly having to negotiate with sort of a dozen different western powers and then the east is more and more fragmented so i was very sympathetic to him and it sounds like you're more sympathetic to him than i was ultimately i kind of came down on the pick a pick a campaign to win because i mean it yeah you know to take to take that example the italy campaign is done on a on a small mm. scale relatively speaking um 
the army he sends is not likely to to fight a pitched battle with the Normans and and win. It's mainly there to capture towns and hold them. And then <clears throat> I was thinking earlier, you know, it felt, you know, again, I, I feel very judgmental sitting <laughs> sitting hmm. so distant from these decisions, but it felt a bit like with um, the Mirio Kefalon campaign that he did the opposite, that he had such a large army that he thought, I can't divert the army from this course so ends up blundering into this trap because it'll be too logistic, too much of a nightmare to reroute this army around and so on. I mean, it, did, did you think my criticism was was terribly unfair or is there... No, no, no. The pick a campaign to win thing, absolutely. I agree with, um, you know, and I mean, there's, there's, I mean, it's continuity in so many of these things. I mean, particularly, I mean, you know, I mean, someone should write some sort of comparison, I think, between, you know, Belisarius and uh, many others, come back, you know, when it comes to, you know, shoe, shoestring budget, um, small forces doing quite a lot, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and equally sort of, you know, Mirakeflon there, I mean, there's going to be some sort of interesting comparison of Manzikert and things uh, to be made, I think. So when it comes to, and obviously a whole bunch of different circumstances, and that's a very broad generalization. Uh, but it's interesting seeing some of these continuities across. Um, but yeah, it's, it's I know, because you've got to think they've all had similar kind of, you know, say, childhoods and training, um, again, something I, I bring up a little bit in the book, and, you know, so what, what do these people know? And, yeah, they've gone through, I mean, they've got, you know, this wealth of classical history and everything else, and they've read all the same thing, I mean, arguably that we have, possibly even more than we have. Um, when it comes to, you know, what to do, what not to do, uh, obviously the practical stuff as well on, you know, for, you know, what actually you do on campaign. I mean, these people are pretty highly trained and you've got all of your, uh, you know, Romans of command structure of, you know, subalterns and things, which no other medieval army seems to really have. Uh, I mean, you get a little bit of sergeants and stuff coming in this period and things like the Norman armies, but generally not really. Um, this idea of ranks and everything else is pretty still unique to the Romans. Um, and with this kind of wealth, they've got, you know, they know, think, you know, small force theory and uh, defense and depth and, you know, how lots of these things are all things that they'll have studied from more or less when they could read. And yet these things do keep happening. And so, you know, you wonder a little bit. Um, I mean, and this idea of, I suppose, the sort of chess master emperor sort of planning it all out in advance, I think, is you know, definitely overplayed. Um, as you said, there's so many competing priorities the entire time. Um and therefore, you know, what is my final judgment on Man Manuel? This is it's one of those things I sort of I have kinder days towards him when I read certain certain passages, um, and that is in particular, yes, I mean, should, I mean, a few decisions taken differently, and it seems that particularly Italy, I don't know about Egypt, but definitely Italy, likely would have worked out. Um, there are still, I mean, some benefits anyway. You know, fighting a war in someone else's backyard is much better than doing it in your backyard. I mean, arguably lots of the issues of Alexius and previously is that all the wars are happening on in his backyard. And this is ruinous for you know, your economy and everything else. So as much as, OK, he didn't conquer Italy, at least he didn't have the big Norman raids and wars that Alexius suffered and indeed would be suffered post-manual, is that, you know, the war was in their backyard, at least. Um, which definitely in my more generous moments, I think, well, this is absolutely, you know, even if it's sort of a bit of a glorious failure, it's not in your backyard, at least, and therefore possibly worth doing. Um, and yeah, again, there's a little bit, you know, interesting little things when it comes to both Hungarian and argued Byzantine troops in the 1140s. There's, there's an interesting, it's, it sort of implies there might be, you know, Roman boots on the ground in Italy under lo-fi. It's, it's only one little reference, but implies, you know, this isn't the first time, um, you know, since Bari fell that there have been troops in that area. Um, 
you know, they are keeping this in mind that, okay, one of these days, if we manage to get, you know, the stars all align on this, then yes, we're back. And equally, there seems to be at least, I mean, definitely until the 13th century, I mean, there's still plenty of Greek monasteries and, you know, you know, a population there that are welcoming to them. Um, I mean, Naples is still, the dukes there are still using Byzantine titles until Roger takes over. Um, So, I mean, there is very much, you know, the home there. Uh, And equally, arguably, in the Middle East, I mean, you still got the Melkites and things today. Um, So this is not something that sort of disappears, this idea that, um, oh, you know, one of these days, maybe we might be Roman again. Um, So I don't think that, you know, anything Manuel Manuel was doing here was massively, um, you know, out of the realms of possibility. Was his reach exceeding his grasp and he was trying to do too many things at once? Yes, it seems so. Um, But I suppose it is one of those sort of Red Queen effect things. This is from um, Alice in Wonderland and it's used in evolution quite a lot, whereby uh, so this little exchange in Alice in Wonderland where... um, uh, they have this race or something, and basically they're both sprinting as fast as they can, and they stay at the same tree. Um, and so Alice says something along the lines of just like, oh, where I'm from, you know, we race and we get somewhere else. And uh, she's replied, uh, oh, well, here you need to run really fast just to stand still. Um, so this idea that, you know, by doing all of these things, he manages to more or less keep the empire where it is. And if he didn't run that fast and try this often, then it would go backwards. Um, and so that is, I suppose, my my other sort of more generous appropriation is that by doing these things, you know, manages to keep them where they are. And the second, you know, and so saying, oh no, no, he should have sat back or focused on one thing, well, then everything would have gone out of control. Yeah, <laughs> I know, and I I know I obviously my business is narrative, so I get a bit too narratively um, neat or whatever at times. Um, and I when I put this to Anthony Caldellis, he didn't. He didn't go click, but I said to him, you know, I I sort of think if in the film or TV version of Manuel, hmm. when the Second Crusade happens, he has a sort of vision of the Fourth Crusade happening. I mean, not not literally, but as in the Normans launch this attack on the Greek coast while the Second Crusade is passing through, and so he sees, well, this is a massive danger, um, and. So my issue with Manuel is he then arrests all the Venetians in the empire, you know, whatever, 30 years, 40 years later. And they're his insurance against another Norman attack. So that's now gone. And then you haven't got any treaty in place with the Normans that's really solid. And then obviously you can then say, well, then and then the Fourth Crusade happens or then the sack of Thessaloniki happens and so on. And Anthony Caldellis was like, well, you know the fleet the roman fleet was still there mm. and they could have seen off the normans so it's not what you're saying isn't a sort of you know massive mistake on manuel's part my only issue with that is that the roman fleet has always been there and the normans have attacked many times before so they're not they're not insurance against them having a successful attack but again am i being too narratively specific in that instance yeah so the fleet thing is is one of those things i find fascinating actually one of my first articles is on the fleet i mean i don't know if in the depths of the internet you might be able to find it uh kind of thing it's on sort of uh, john and the fleet um mm. which is why it doesn't come up as much it does come up a little bit in the book but not as much because there is absolutely the narrative of um uh in particular that sort of uh john and manuel had the same sort of uh top civil servants this guy sort of um you know um john Poot says 
uh, kind of thing, who um, in uh, Coniatis uh, basically blames, Coniatis hates this guy. I mean, literally talks about him, you know, sort of, uh, you know, you know, he, you know, everything he insults his wife, he insults, you know, he really does not like this guy. Uh, and this, of course, is the main source on him. Uh, but particularly in um, Coniatis basically has this thing that he, in all this finance minister, in order to sort of save money, um, takes the taxes from what had previously been the sort of localized defense fleets, your thematic fleets that have been operating for a while, and essentially decides, well, this is uh, no longer going to be sent, spent locally on local defense fleets, but it's going to be centralized, um, you know, in the capital. And that the line from Coniatis is that the second this happens, that basically the local defense fleets died, and that actually all of the money in the capital was misused anyway. And so this didn't actually lead to anything happening. Um, and uh, and that's you know a fair line that you know turns up in a lot of scholarship and sort of modern stuff as well that okay this is this fault and therefore that led to the end of the fleet and therefore twelve oh four because of that there's a few problems with this uh, naturally things like invasions of Italy and invasions of Egypt are pretty strong naval <laughs> things which if you had no fleet already uh, you know, make no sense whatsoever and equally under John and Manuel you have you know the armies going back and forth the entire time being well supplied. I mean, the logistics of this whole thing, you know, keeping everyone with enough water, with enough food. I mean, there's some good stuff in this of uh, this guy, books by John Pryor on this, um, you know, on how to actually logistically, you know, deal with this. And, you know, you really can't do this with no fleet. The other sort of argument, and I think Sir Peter Frankman makes this, is that even though there is no Byzantine army with the First Crusade, I mean, how are they eating uh, for a lot of it? And, you yeah, know, the argument has probably got to be the Byzantine fleet is resupplying them the entire time, even though there's no army with them. Um and so therefore this idea that you know, the fleet just suddenly disappears doesn't seem to be the case in which case you've got to think okay well what's going on with this bit and why would you suddenly go from these little localized defense fleets um to trying to have a kind of centralized navy and for john it seems to work out fairly well and it's probably as i said the rise of you know venice and the normans is that having a you know a bunch of kind of um patrol vessels and you know, great for sort of you know anti-arab raiding uh, great at anti-pirate, um, that kind of thing, but are not great when you have a large armed fleet coming at you because this thing is going to smash. And when the, Ven the Venetians are going around uh, the Aegean um, in the 1120s, this is basically what happens, is there's this huge crusade of Venetian fleet that can do what it likes in the Aegean uh, because there is no localized defense force that can stand up to them. So unsurprisingly, this initiative that comes under John obviously is to create, okay, we need our own little, you know, I say little, you know, big centralized navy that can stand up to one of these things. Then I suppose with, as I said, the various crises that go on from the end of uh, Manuel's reign onwards, is it likely that the money from this centralized fleet started to be misappropriated and used in other things? Yes, probably, particularly by late Angeloy and everything else. So um, the idea that sort of it was all declining from uh, John or indeed earlier, uh, I think is definitely too much because, I mean, the fleet is very effective. And the other thing in particular with this of the River Rhine navies, I mean, there's a lot of um, uh, ships being used up and down things like the Danube, uh, down to the major rivers, um, sort of in Anatolia as well, which, you know, are, you know, slightly smaller boats. Though to be honest, you can fit a trireme up the Thames quite far. Uh, I did the measurements, actually. That was It's in the article I wrote. Uh, it's quite fun. Anyway, you can basically fit these things up uh, quite far up the Thames, at least as far as Oxford. Um, so, you know, this is pretty useful, actually, for logistics and everything else. Um, and therefore, this if there is a big decline of the fleet, it happens pretty late on in the 12th century, 
and that if for some reason they are going back to these small you know, you know, plucky defence fleets uh, to counter the pirates, which they are, then obviously this isn't enough to stand up to a big centralised navy such as the Normans and Venetians have. So yes, you're uh, to going back to your original thing, I suppose, the vision of kind of um, the raids and everything else immediately means, right, if we need to take this on, we need to have a similar large fleet that can gather um, and your local defence forces aren't enough. And if you don't make that transition quick enough, um, this isn't good enough. And you, obviously you can see this modern navy. I mean, no no modern navy has you know, small little localised, um, you know, sort of uh, independent fleet commands. Are you either massive, like the you know obviously the US sort of you know, you know fleet in the Pacific, fleet in whatever it is, uh, which are big enough to be a fleet on and of themselves, or yeah, you've got to go in a carrier group. Um, these things have got to be big enough to actually do something. Um, otherwise, you know, your small little I don't know things like you know I mean I, I did a bit, a bit of stuff with modern fleets as well on this. You know, small things for you know sort of you know, localized defense is all very well, but are not going to be able to stand up to a major actual naval invasion. Um, so yeah, you can read that article if you want all the information on that before we get bogged down. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, I suppose. Man Wheels thinking, I've got it. I've got a Norman attack covered with what I've got now. He can't anticipate how everything's going to unfold after his his death. Um, which obviously takes us into every ten years of the other thing. I mean, these things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so uh, that takes us into the the post Man Wheel period. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, from my point of view, there is a lot of contingent things going on mm. um, with Andronicus being a disaster and then the Bulgarian uprising succeeding. Um, but a lot of scholarship tends to say the Comnenian system was inherently um, going to collapse at some point because of the nature of um, personal rule and the old court honor system no longer encouraging successful provincial leaders to kind of rise up and serve at the center and what have you how do you mm. how do you see that um that those arguments in that period yeah so i mean i i remember listening to I said nathan on this and obviously he's very good on this kind of stuff as well um and initially anyway obviously you've got a system where in the early communion system anyway you have a lot of interplay between the capital and the provinces. I mean, you tend to, I mean, you can see this in bishops, uh, you can see this in uh, lawyers, uh, some judges, um, you can see this in provincial governors. And there's kind of essentially a continuous system whereby maybe you're a capital person, but then you get sent out to the provinces and then you come back and maybe you'll get sent out again. And you can track this in various letter collections, uh, particularly if I know the sort of, um, you know, Italicus, um, so Prodromos, lots of these as well. And obviously they all prefer the capital. I mean, lots of these, you know, say, oh, now I'm posted here. Oh, I miss the capital. So they all prefer that. But equally, there is this system uh, that sort of basically sends them back out. And this, I suppose, is what the provinces get out of the capital um, quite a lot of the time. And equally, as someone in the provinces, you want to go to the capital because then you can keep going up these sorts of ladders. And so even though there isn't the old court honours system, there are a whole bunch of ladders to go up. Um, and you know, and often, I mean, lots of particular sort of churchmen sort of you know seem to split between ecclesiastical positions and imperial positions, uh, the entire time on sort of separate thing, you know, depending on which, you know, which gives you lots of options, really. Um, and I ran the numbers actually, because I mean, this is one of those questions that keeps coming up, and I've probably been looking at this stuff since I was an undergraduate. And so I ran the numbers on exactly how many Comanians are there in uh major positions. 
um, across all of these various things. Um, they are still a, well, this is obviously a slightly fraught uh, process just to sort of say, put that out there in that we don't have exactly complete lists of governors. We don't have complete lists of judges or anything like that. Um, and there's lots of, okay, great. We know who the governor of this person, this place was in 1130. And then we've got no other mention of it for ages. And we don't know who the governor of this uh, particular province was 10 years later. Uh, you know, and equally, lots of them are all called things like, um, you know, Constantine Ducas. Is this the same Constantine Ducas? Is this a son? Is this a cousin? Is this, you know, uh, so th this is so bear in mind, running the figures on this is a bit fraught. Uh, but I did the best I could on this. And um, at least sort of under kind of uh, Alexius John Manuel on this kind of thing, you it's definitely the minority of provincial governorships. They are, they do tend to be, um, I'm going to say, the sort of the good ones. So, I mean, they almost always have a Comdenos in charge of Cyprus uh, or a very kind of, you know, someone married in and everything else. Uh, so very close. Uh, likewise, something like Durakim, obviously your major sort of, you know, fortress town in the Balkans kind of thing over there, usually uh, somebody, you know, of one point in sort of John's reign, they even sort of, uh, they have somebody who isn't a Comdenos and they sort of say, okay, you're retiring now and put one in. Um so, I mean, it does tend to be, I'm going to say, the sort of the important ones. They are making sure there is somebody who's very close in. But otherwise, I mean, there are a lot of people who aren't. Um, the, I would say it gets a bit blurry as to here is somebody who is a, um, a major presence locally. OK, they're invited to the capital for a little bit, and then they're appoint appointed back to be in charge of their place. And this is something that did not go on so much. So there is a little bit more, I was going to say, recognition and appointment of um, local powers. This, of course, has pretty massive implications for how things turn out, if you do want to be a little bit teleological about it, as if they've been recognising local major power brokers as the major figures for a while, and they have less involvement in the capital, this kind of feedback loop has already started to break down. You can see this in, in particular, the areas that are less um, obviously, kind of, this is your sort of uh, difficulty with um, Caldelis nationalist stuff, but let's say uh, less um, Romani Greeky technical term there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, we're talking about sort of your Serb lands, your Armenian lands, uh, you know, these sorts of areas. You have more recognition of the locals. Obviously, this is, you know, the locals prefer this, of course. Um, great. You know, I get to be Prince, prince of uh, Diaclea, um, you know, sort of uh, Orashka. Um, or indeed, obviously, Cilicia famously, sort of, I mean, Cilicia there. But obviously, you know, this does have implications when it comes to the locals wanting to suddenly go their own way when actually they're getting nothing out of the capital anymore. So there's it's a bit of a mixed bag, at least for your sort of Alexius John Manuel sort of area. Um, once we get a little bit later, into, and, I, and I think this is, this is more or less the short version of my arguments, I think this is something that comes up during the Angeloi, um, you suddenly have obviously a lot, much less interplay. Uh, and that goes again across the board, judges, bishops, um, imperial figures. You know, if you want to be in the capital, you stay in the capital. And equally, you know, you get these sort of more homegrown bishops uh, looking after local concerns. I mean, also things like justice. This is where you have bishops suddenly start starting to be judges. This comes up in sort of, you know, Eustathius and Thessaloniki and this kind of stuff as well. And suddenly, OK, the bishop's the, the main guy because we're getting less support from the capital than we used to. Um, and I think this is a, this is combined with the fact that in your earlier Comnenian periods, um, sort of Alexius John and into Manuel as well, 
they have been, you know, they have had a, in some ways a pro-province policy, particularly on the borders, um, you know, to make, I mean, this is, this is, I suppose, the central kind of contradiction is that these areas that were overrun with Turks, Normans, Pechenegs, Cumans, whoever, under Alexius, suddenly are kind of vibrant, very inverted commas, Greek Orthodox, you know, Greeky Romany successor states in the 13th century. Um, and this is because obviously you've got, you know, all of these fortresses being built. You do have provincial governors being sent out. You have kind of the restoration of monasteries, the restoration of all of these things in things like Western places like Western Anatolia going on. Um, and therefore, you know, Nicaea is storming uh, the sublater principality there. Uh, you know, all of these areas suddenly and equally same with Serbia, same with Bulgaria. Uh, these areas that were these sort of border areas obviously do get a fair bit of support investment of cash and fortifications, investment of decent personnel, who then get told to stay there. And then unsurprisingly, they think, okay, if we're staying here, we better make a good jo job of it staying here. And therefore, the second the capital is a bit weak, actually, they can go their own way. So in some ways, um, really positive Komnenian policies both laid, the, you know, really sort of you know, laid down the groundwork for, as I said, vibrant successor states in these areas. Uh, is I suppose where, and that's I suppose the central contradiction here. It's very interesting. I mean, that's a, a, another fun part of your book is um, showing the work uh, John did rebuilding defenses in in Western Anatolia. And most listeners will know that that's obviously where the Roman successor state comes from that retakes Constantinople. But they may be less familiar. We were talked about it with Nathan Webdell with uh, with Nathan um, that. Uh, from Epirus, from mm. uh, you know the west of of Greece, another Roman successor state emerges, which is very successful for a, a good period. Mm. Um, so, it, do do you see the collapse of the you know that sort of eleven eighty to twelve oh four period as largely contingent on on factors that happened, or was you know was it the Angeloys sort of lurching from one crisis to another that led provincials to go well why don't i just hang back and wait for this to settle down and i'll i'll run things you know down here yes i think it's so having had let's call it most of 80 years to be honest between alexius and you know later alexius and manuel of uh provinces get and you can see this in the archaeology um and everything everything else provinces are materially much richer uh particularly the border ones because, I mean, that's where you want to put these things to, you know, safeguard these areas. And therefore, you know, Epirus, you know, some Dirachian I mentioned earlier, um, these sorts of areas are, you know, much better than they were uh, in the sort of, you know, inverted commas, sort of peak empire under, you know, Basil II and similar. I mean, you know, your, I mean, your simple things like, I don't know, the pottery that, you know, is that we find, everything like that is much better in this period. Um you know, everywhere is doing much better is, is you know, person for person, you know, richer, it seems, than most of the sort of economic histories of Byzantium um, because of these sorts of policies. And some of it obviously is a fair bit of, you know, it's expansive, you know, wars in other people's backyards rather than yours, this kind of stuff uh, for a while. And then suddenly, you know, being in a better place by sort of around 1180, suddenly you have this moment then where everything is much more difficult at the centre um, and you feel like, oh, okay, actually, we're doing pretty well for ourselves here. In some ways, you know, the the successful Canadian policies really have uh, left us better off. And then suddenly, you know, 
it's not, you know, the next wave is not continuing these. Uh, I mean, had, as I said, you had, I don't know, you know, this is the kind of, you know, had sort of, you know, Italy worked out, had a few more things, you know, over in Syria, et cetera, worked out. Um, then in some ways, you know, the investments and everything else would have moved on to the next set of frontiers. And you would have started developing those even more. And equally, rather than there being a materially rich uh, area that also has all the troops, actually, the troops would have moved on to the slightly more difficult borderland area. Uh, this is one of those sort of things throughout history is that, you know, you tend to have new dynasties coming from previous borderlands because that's where the troops are. I mean, the Tudors in England is a good example as well. I mean, they're the Welsh border people who had the troops um, just you know, very similarly. So unsurprisingly, these areas, uh, oddly enough, kind of that have the troops and the wealth suddenly in them. And that's Armenia, that's Bulgaria, uh, that's Epirus, uh, and that's yeah, Western Anatolia, you know, sort of that's Nicaea. And the Trebizond, all of these areas have the troops and some wealth, which at that point, if yeah, the centre is not giving anything to them, if anything, the centre is an active drain on them at this, these sort of things. Therefore, you know, why not go their own way for what seems like something that's because, I mean, previously, um, you know, you always, you know, uh, as a successful general who defended your province and you know, things are going badly at the centre, you marched on the capital, you named yourself emperor um, and you know, the empire continues. Um, and in some ways, I mean, had there been, I don't know, the Bulgarian rebellion been incredibly successful and they'd done that, you would have just ended up with a sort of Assen dynasty of emperors. Uh, that arguably is something that, you know, had they been a little bit more successful, uh, they could have done. Um, but, you know, it didn't. And likewise, as, as you said, Epirus and Nicaea does do that eventually. Um, so in some ways, this is where wealth um, and resources when it comes to troops, when it comes to, uh, you know, material wealth, has been much more evenly distributed, meaning there isn't just one or two areas. I mean, this, this is actually back to your original comment where suddenly there's a lot more players. You know, if you're dealing with not only all of these Western powers and all of these multiple Eastern powers, then you need to put troops and wealth in different places. And then suddenly everywhere's equal and there isn't just, a, you know, you know, here is, you know, the challenger place and the capital that traditionally has everything. And then either the capital holds out and you know, crosses the other one or the new one crosses the capital and you know, retakes it. Actually, suddenly, with there's multiple places around there that can all fight each other as well, of course, uh, then this is why it ends up the way. And this is my sort of like big picture dynamics uh, thing on this, is that in some ways, therefore, the uh, spreading of wealth, and some of this is due to all of those other powers. I mean, your Venetians, your Genoese, um, Normans, equally um, everything else, is that, you know, uh, Epirus, for example, I mean, that is supported by all of your uh, you know, well, what is today kind of your sort of, uh, you know, Montenegro, that sort of area, uh, you know, your lovely tourists, sort of Dubrovnik and uh, all of this kind of areas are in your kind of Byzantine trade area, uh, which the second things are breaking down, it's still in Epirus's area. Uh, I mean, so John gets kind of uh, all of these places to acclaim him as emperor at Easter, which is a small victory in some ways, but that plus trade rights is exactly what they want. Um, so, I mean, this sort of developing world, and whereas, I mean, in your uh, past centuries, you had, you know, Byzantium and, you know, obviously, sure, there's Persia uh, or there's, you know, your other sort of major players. But that's about it. I mean, there is there aren't multiple smaller places, all needing resources and all developing each other. Um, and that, I think, is the, is the change dynamic here in many ways, is that you people have options. 
Uh, I mean, same for, you know, I know, say, I mean, look at Hungary, for example, which, you know, they're sort of getting Byzantine crowns and papal blessings at the same time. Serbia, you know, the Serbs do the same thing. Um, you know, people have options the entire time. And this obviously makes it much more difficult to operate in. Um, and so, yeah, that's my sort of overall dynamic things. Uh, could, therefore, you know, a slightly more, you know, a few battles differently one way or the other have kept it together? Certainly. I mean, you know, we could have ended up with an Assen dynasty, as we said, could have ended up with, you know, Epirus basically retaking um, Constantinople very soon afterwards. Um, but, you know, why didn't it? In some ways, because I think uh, of the successful Canadian policies of uh, resources and troops being everywhere rather than concentrated is my, I suppose, all purpose analysis of it. It's it's really interesting because it's one of those things that... Um you know, a kind of map narrative sort of dominates the internet. So um, if the territory is decreasing, the whole empire must be weaker. Nice. Whereas yeah, there's been a lot of work on this, that the economy is actually growing, the population oh, yeah. is growing. And as you're saying, to you, it's hard to elaborate in a narrative why a political system collapses at the same time that people are actually better off. I mean, I, I tried to touch on this with the border in Western Anatolia where some towns were growing because now the Turks are a new market to sell your produce yeah. to, where before that market wasn't there because the people over the hill are, are Romans growing their own stuff or, you know, what have you just little dynamics like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, and obviously I'll, I'll be getting into the narrative of all these successor states uh, relatively soon. <laughs> um so uh, let's let's finish with 1204 then um mm. which um you know i thought i was amusingly harsh on the on the crusaders and all their mm -hmm. um hypocrisy until i read anthony caldellis's new history where he's absolutely <laughs> scathing on another level um about the kind of anti-roman mm. racist uh, we, we would say now sort of rhetoric and ideas that and any and so on and so on i mean what's your feeling about the fourth crusade i mean again it's a topic we could talk about for ages is it a completely contingent event is it something that would have happened anyway did the latins have their eyes on this prize one way or another what, what's your sense of the fourth crusade so i'm gonna preface my answer by saying that uh funny enough so my ne my next uh book which i'll won't even start really writing for another year or so is possibly going to be on this uh, and so I entirely retain the right to change my mind completely by the time I write something else down. Of about course, this. of course. Um, but yeah, this is something I'll be uh, probably putting together in about two years time. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens, admittedly. Um, but one of the um, things I'm going to, I which I'm thinking, because I'm really sort of starting to plot down a few ideas here. Um, so one of the things I think I'm going to be highlighting a little bit is there is the um very much the trope and this includes in byzantine literature and definitely also today as you said in interesting corners of the internet and things of kind of you know constantinople as you know the great you know classical unsacked city of antiquity that has you know survived everything and everything and everything until 1204 um and in more recent history to 1204 this is not really true anymore um and, you know, just this is the kind of, you know, the nature of the city itself. Uh, and I'm saying it's not really true uh, on both of those characteristics. I mean, I said there basically the great unsacked city um, of antiquity. On the one hand, you actually do have lots of pretty violent changeovers going on. 
Um, this you can say, I mean, the uh, in recent times. So obviously Alexius famously comes in with troops. A little bit of sacking goes on that they try and brush under the carpet. And Anna definitely does um, as much as possible. And, you know, he at the end of the day is taking over. Even John, you know, obviously, you know, his his troops do take the gate, you know, the doors of the Great Palace off its hinges in order to get in. Um, you know, this isn't quite, you know, it doesn't mention anybody dying or anything else, but then, you know, laudatory histories wouldn't. Um, equally, you know, you've got, and then obviously the second you hit um, the Angeloi, this is happening the whole damn time. And then, of course, once you do get to the sort of fateful events of the Fourth Crusade, Suddenly, I mean, you've got a whole bunch of, you know, this, this rapid, rapid turnover of emperors, all of which are pretty military. Um, and so the idea that so suddenly 1204 happens, and this is, the, you know, the great city sacked at last, um, is not really true. Because, I mean, actually, the city had been having a lot of little ones for a while at this point. So, I mean, that's kind of the one point. The other thing... Um, Shall I just jump in there? Sorry, just to remind... Listeners might be thinking, wait a minute, what? Um, so we're talking about, let's say, uh, Vranus's rebellion, which hmm. Isaac Angelos puts down with the help of now there's there's brothers. Is this Conrad at that point? I'm forgetting. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, of Montferrat, and and the Latin troops are sort of allowed to sack the suburbs and then start looting people's houses to sort of because they're not being paid hmm. in any other way to to celebrate such a victory. Yeah, and then Andronicus lets people sack the Italian city yeah. quarters when he takes power. Um, are there any other ones I'm forgetting? Uh, those are the main ones. I mean, equally, mm. I mean, with all of the various fires that go on and everything else, I mean, there's... <laughs> well, and I suppose the palace gets looted, doesn't it, repeatedly? Yeah. So repeatedly, when Isaac yeah. takes control and then John the Fat's coup, so people are just running through the palace stealing money yeah. all the time there are, i mean this is the idea of you know mo i mean just think of it in I think, modern terms kind of thing, the idea of like there are multiple years in a row uh or you know small little gaps before that where you have you know i mean obviously you know think of the uh i mean without meant to make too many contemporary parallels uh you know obviously the outroar at, uh the, the complete sort of uproar at sort of obviously the u.s capital thing um I mean, imagine things like that, but much, much worse happening for years. Yes. Uh, and sure, you know, the government sort of continues and everything else. But I mean, this happening again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really interesting because I never talk about modern politics. And of mm. course, nothing really happened on that day mm. to affect yeah. the political. But if it happens six times in a row, someone will go, you know, th this doesn't look great, does it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, as I said, much worse. And, you know, so I, try, I do, do my best not to have too many of these sorts of things. But, yeah, obviously, that, I think, is an obvious sort of parallel uh, on this kind of, you know, the, the seat of your government, this happening. Um, and so, firstly, that. And equally, the, the other aspect, as I said, you know, the great, you know, antique, you know, city of the Romans. And particularly in the 12th century, this is also um, not quite uh, the case so much anymore. I mean, obviously, we talked to you, so there's the large Italian quarter. Uh, equally, there's multiple. I mean, really, we should talk about, you know, the Genoese quarter and the Pisan quarter and the Venetian quarter, all of which have their own little churches, uh, their own monasteries. Uh, equally, I mean, you've got, I mean, there's a good few lists in quality of the scholarship of things like, and here's the German church, and here's, um, you know, so all of these are various groups, not to mention, I mean, you know, there's a mosque, uh, you know, there's very, there's two competing rival Jewish communities, uh, which are, you know, going from strength to strength in this period. Um, you know, this is really quite a sort of, you know, global, you know, city. Uh, there's an absolute, you know, equally there's this, um, uh, you know, sort of area which seems to be full of um, 
uh, Nubians, Ethiopians, you know, sort of um, yeah, sub-Saharan Africans as well, which the Crusaders are completely like, wow, at this, um, you know, sort of in, in this, just like, oh, who are these people kind of thing, where it seems to have been, you know, perfectly normal in Constantinople before that, um, if you, uh, these guys to be around. And so this idea of uh, Constantinople itself uh, being this kind of, uh, I don't know, ethnic Roman, you know, sort of capital city is definitely not the case. In some ways, I mean, this is the source of its wealth at this point. Um, I mean, this is great stuff in, um, so John Setzis, who's one of these sort of, uh, you know, sort of poets and, you know, writers and everything else. Uh, he is this, this uh, long, long thing. It, it might finally be translated one of these days called the Kiliades, which is sort of, yeah, the sort of the, uh, which he talks in this about how he goes up the street and he hears kind of this language, that language, next language. And he obviously is showing off a bit because obviously he can speak them all, um, you know, but, you know, this is very much kind of, you know, something much more similar to inverted commas, a modern city when it comes to all of these different groups. And in some ways, I think this leads, uh, I, I suppose, going, going back to some of the original stuff uh, you asked there, to various people thinking that, OK, well, this is our city, too, unsurprisingly. Um you know, the second, the, you know, there have been, there would have been generations of Venetians, um, you know, over a hundred years worth of Venetians, at least, who would have lived and died. Uh, in literally, you know, their great grandparents would have been, you know, born, born and, you know, worked in Constantinople. Uh, and they keep in touch with the people back home. And then suddenly, obviously, being, um, you know, this stuff in the 1180s and onwards, uh, indeed, you know, the quick few things before, but generally, I mean, is would have been a big change. It's something, well, this is our city just as much as anyone else's. Uh, and so I think that's kind of one of those other things that I'm going to be probably sort of picking up is the changing nature of Constantinople in the 12th century in particular um, meant that in some ways people felt like they definitely did deserve a piece of it. <laughs> um not to mention, obviously, you've got all of these kind of, as I said, you know, um, yeah, columnists obviously wanting them there. Uh, I mean, there you are, you live in this particular neighbourhood and your various friends are Venetians, Genoese, Germans, whatever. Unsurprisingly, and you think, OK, and they're going to come in, they're finally going to sort out this political situation. Fair enough. These these are my neighbours. I mean, you know, um, there, yeah, there wasn't exactly total resistance in that sort of I don't know, racist ethnic way either. There's plenty of you know, Greeks who did work for the um, yeah, Latin Empire. Uh, afterwards on this level um so i mean that's kind of the, these two sort of facets i'm going to bring up is the fact that it you know seems to have been sacked on a small level multiple times increasingly over the previous hundred years and also the city itself uh had become as i said this you know really different global city in a way that i don't think really occurs again um for you know until the modern period to be honest so i mean those are my sort of two kind of like um slightly different threads i'm planning on bringing in myself on that if that sort of semi gives you an idea of where my thinking's at <laughs> yeah that's really interesting and i think that is one of those things when you read the sources and you realize the crusader army isn't that big and you mm. think well why isn't the population of this huge city like they would have been in 717 mm. working as one to throw them out and you think well if they are much more disunited and and politically um you know disunited as they've become through all these factions and and so on it's it's easier to understand how this thing sort of happens um uh, without people realizing we're about to be sacked that oh this is a kind of as you're saying this is a high level political thing mm. maybe the uh the crusaders will take over the city and install their own new government you're not anticipating they're going to come to your house and steal all your stuff yeah and you're thinking well i'll stick with my neighborhood 
we're all, we'll be all right. We're not, you know, yeah. we're not in conflict with them. Well, especially you'd had Latin empresses for, you know, most of the last century. Uh, mm. Therefore, at least half, if not more than half Latin, you know, emperors, whatever it is. I mean, this is not, not to mention, I mean, so many, um, you know, various kind of, you know, your key positions, your provincial governorships, whatever it is. I mean, the idea of there being various, inverted commas, you know, alien Latins in charge is, is definitely not the case. They are completely normal part of the fabric of this thing. Um, yeah, just as kind of, you know, Christian Turks have been and all this sort of stuff as well. Mm. Um, you know, this, I mean, I think sort of uh, the written down sources, particularly after the fact, really have to justify this is why, well, to be honest, all these terrible things happened and this is why we were justified. And that's when the kind of um, the racial angle really comes in is justifying this to particularly to the rest of rest of Christian Europe mm. um, is that you know, these people deserved it because mm. um, whereas how does it happen as it goes along? Um, I think a lot of this is, as I said, because, you know, is this some of this has been building for quite a while. Um, and in a way that didn't necessarily, I think in some ways didn't necessarily have to end up like this. I mean, could there have been uh, some sort of, as I said, Latin empire without the sack? Yes. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Which is another sort of thing that is not mentioned very much. Um, no, no, it's so fascinating. I mean, it's a good case study for um, budding historians, the the sack, because it, within about a decade, it's with it's everybody's interest to imply it was a horrible thing and mm. it was everybody else's fault and it was terrible, and uh, including the Latins. So it's really interesting for those. So then, if you read all that, you go, "Oh, it must have been awful." And and you need then to reconstruct things and and work out. Well, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as uh, as they're all saying it is. But anyway, um, well, I think the sack itself probably was, but the uh, the, the yeah. nature of the politics around it, um, you know, with sort of I don't know these evil people or that evil people, probably yes. not. Yeah, exactly. Well, it sounds like we might need to talk to you again in the future to gain more insight into that. Um, so I think we'll probably wrap things up there and remind people that Emperor John II Komnenos, Rebuilding New Rome, 1118 to 1143, is available now um, from uh, Oxford University Press. And go to the website to get a discount code. And uh, Dr. Lau, thank you so much for coming back to talk to us and best of luck with your next uh, areas of study. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure. And uh, yeah, best to all of you out there as well.